Hey everyone, this is Brie. You are listening to Brief, the podcast that summarizes all the books. This is episode two of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. In this episode, we cover chapters 22 through the end of the book, and we do a deep dive into the themes of the novel. Okay, let's get right into chapter 22. Jane ends up staying in Gateshead for a month. She stays with Georgiana and Eliza because the two can't stand each other and she feels bad for them. A month later, Georgiana ends up going to live with her uncle in England. She marries a wealthy man eventually, and Eliza joins a convent in France and eventually becomes mother superior of her convent. Jane returns to Thornfield, and she is nervous about seeing Mr. Rochester again. She wants to make a quick entrance without drawing attention, but she runs into Mr. Rochester outside before she enters the house. And they talk a little bit about his time in London. He asks, you know, why did you stay away for a month? And before she leaves, she says, thank you, Mr. Rochester, for your great kindness. I am strangely glad to get back to you again. And wherever you are is my home, my only home. So she basically confesses her love and practically runs into the house after saying that. After this, time passes with no mention of Blanche, and Jane starts to hope that they aren't really going to get married, but she knows that that's probably not the case. She's like, they're for sure going to get married. Chapter 23. So that summer, Jane strolls through the garden, admiring the beauty, and she sees Mr. Rochester and tries to go unnoticed, but he calls her over to him, and he asks her if she has grown attached to Adele, Mrs. Fairfax, and Thornfield, and she responds yes, and he tells her that it is sad because it's time for her to go and find another place of employment because he is to be married in a month. Jane says she's like, I'm going to advertise in the paper, and Mr. Rochester says he will help her. And he tells her about one family in Ireland who needs a governess, and he knows them. But Jane is like, that's very far away from Thornfield, very far away from you, and doesn't really want to do that. So they sit together, and Mr. Rochester tells her that when she's near, he has a queer feeling, is what he says on page 270. Jane starts crying, tells him she regrets ever coming to Thornfield because now she's sad and in love with him basically and she says on 271 i have known you mr rochester and it strikes me with terror and anguish to feel i absolutely must be torn from you forever i see the necessity of departure and it is like looking on the necessity of death and he asks her he's like why do you have to leave and she says because of blanche ingram she tells him that she can't become a robot with no emotion and stay there it was not going to work like that for her if he marries someone else she can't be there and she tells him that even though she was not blessed with riches she believes that they are still equals and he holds her and kisses her and she tells him that she thinks his marriage to blanche will be a sham and she's like you have to let me go I'm ready to leave. And she says on 272, I am no bird and no net ensnares me. I am a free human being with an independent will, which I now exert to leave you. And he tells her that she can decide her destiny and that he will share his heart, hand, and money with her. And he asks her to spend the rest of her life with him. He proposes marriage to her in this moment. And she responds she's like you already made your choice you chose blanche you need to stick to it he she thinks he's messing with her and he again asks her to marry him she doubts that it's true she's like you're messing with me and he says he never loved miss ingram he never loved blanche so he tells jane he's like i love you despite you being poor and plain and they go back and forth. Jane is trying to figure out whether or not he's being sincere. And he asks her again to marry him. And he tells her. <laughs> so basically, this whole conversation in the garden was him trying to make her jealous to like provoke her to see if she really had feelings for him. There's nothing like being proposed to by a man who was just trying to make you jealous with another woman. Anyway. He asks again for her hand in marriage, and this time she accepts. It starts pouring rain. They enter the building, not noticing Mrs. Fairfax. Mr. Rochester kisses Jane, 
she's, you know, elated and happy. And when they pull away from the kiss, she sees Mrs. Fairfax. She's embarrassed and she runs up to her room. And Mr. Rochester visits her three times to make sure that she is okay and happy during the storm. Look, I know that this is like one of the greatest romance novels in the world. And I get it. Like there are some very beautiful moments. And we're, I mean, we're only like, what, like two thirds through the book. There's a lot more coming up as well. And I don't not like their relationship. (laughs) I feel a little bit indifferent. It's just that I can't get over the weirdness of it. Like not only the age gap, because that's, I mean, it's a lot, but like that we can get over But the fact, like the weird stuff that he does, like dressing like a fortune teller to try to get information out of her, to try to get her to confess her feelings, you know, making her jealous, like literally bringing Blanche to his home for those months was just to provoke Jane and see if she had feelings for him, you know, proposing marriage to her right after he just made her jealous about Blanche. Like, it's just very, it feels very, um, 21st century f-boy behavior so i am i'm not a fan i think the writing is beautiful i think that the story gets better but it's just weird it's just a very weird relationship and i'm not i'm not super behind it i can't lie to you okay moving on chapter 24 the next day jane wakes up very happy But she also needs reassurance. She's like, did this really happen? Did he really propose to me? She needs that like reassurance from him. She eats breakfast and goes to meet him. He greets her with a kiss and remarks that she is glowing. And he calls her Jane Rochester and tells her that they will be married in four weeks time. He compliments her, but she refuses to accept them because she sees herself as plain. And he's like, no, I'm going to buy you new dresses and jewelry. And we're going to travel the world together. And Jane reveals to him that she believes within six months to a year, he will no longer be impressed by her. And she begs him not to adorn her with jewels and flowers because that doesn't feel like her. And she asks him why he bothered to put on a show with Blanche Ingram. On 282, he says, well, I feigned courtship with Miss Ingram because I wished to render you as madly in love with me as I was with you. And I knew jealousy would be the best ally I could call in for the furtherance of that end. Because there's nothing like making someone jealous to reassure you that they love you. I love it. I love this. Okay, so Jane then asks Mr. Rochester to tell Mrs. Fairfax of his feelings and intentions because she saw them kissing last night and she's worried that Mrs. Fairfax is going to judge her. And he's like, go get dressed. I'll tell Mrs. Fairfax. Jane finds Mrs. Fairfax after she is told what's going on and she is in shock. She tells Jane that his whole family is prideful, usually thinks of money, which is why she is so surprised that he is going to marry Jane when she has no money. And she confides in Jane that she's worried about her and how much attention Mr. Rochester paid to her and advises Jane to be careful with Mr. Rochester because men of his stature don't usually marry beneath their class. And I'm with Miss Fairfax here. I'm like, tread lightly, girl, because he is a little crazy, if you ask me. Okay, Adele interrupts them. She begs to go into town with Jane and Mr. Rochester And Mr. Rochester accepts when he sees that Jane seems excited about this. And he orders Jane to pick out dresses, but she only wants plain ones. And he wants her to be in extravagant ones. He wants to adorn her in jewels like friggin' Cinderella. So by the end of the trip, Jane is feeling degraded because he's like trying to make her something that she's not. She remembers then the letter from her uncle and is like, I'm going to write him and tell him that I'm going to get married to Mr. Rochester and that I'm alive. She's like, if I can secure that inheritance that he wants to give me, then I'll be on a more even playing field with Mr. Rochester and she won't feel so uncomfortable in this situation because she does feel uncomfortable with like the money and status disparity between the two of them. She tells Mr. Rochester that she doesn't want to be spoiled 
and that she will earn her keep by remaining Adele's governess. And he's like, okay, fine. So you request her presence at dinner. She refuses and she's like, I need things to be as they were at least for another month. Like, I don't need to be Cinderella. I'm uncomfortable with that. And that night he calls for her after dinner. He sings her a song about love, but it's kind of, it's kind of a weird and obsessive song. Like it's not, it's not cute. It's like, it's weird. Jane feels this, like this isn't just me saying it's weird. Like she feels that that song was weird and obsessive. Um, and she plans to keep him at a distance for the next four weeks so that he knows what he's getting into. She's like, I need him to know I'm not Cinderella. I'm not a princess and I'm not going to just like do whatever he wants and be this like character in his life who he obsesses over because that's not who she is. And she says on 295, my future husband was becoming to me my whole world and more than the world, almost my hope of heaven. So while she is concerned that he is, you know, over fantasizing her in this situation or trying to make her something that she's not, she does really love him and really want to be with him. And that's sort of why she's forcing this sort of separation for the next four weeks, because she does not want it to not work out. She really wants to be with him. Okay, chapter 25. So time passes by quickly and the wedding day is approaching. Jane is extremely anxious about the wedding, about mostly about it not happening. She's just stressed. And one night, the day before the wedding, a storm comes in and Mr. Rochester is late coming home from some business and Jane waits for him in the rain and they go inside, dry off, dine together. And as they sit together, Mr. Rochester can tell that Jane is anxious about their wedding the next day, asks if she's having doubts. And Jane tells him about what happened while he was away, which is that she went into her room to discover the veil he bought her, and then he heard and then heard an eerie moaning sound. Okay, so Mr. Rochester bought her a wedding dress and as a gift for the wedding gave her this like really beautiful veil. And Jane is asleep one night. She's having weird dreams again, and she wakes from her nightmare to find a woman in her room, looking at her wedding dress and her wedding veil, and she sees her take the veil, rip it in two, and throw it on the floor. And the woman she describes as like dark hair, kind of like demon-like. She's like scary to look at. And after this, Grace Poole just like left her room and Jane passed out because she was so afraid. So Mr. Rochester is like, yes, that was Grace Poole. He's like, are you sure it was real? It could have just been a nightmare. And Jane is like, no, that really happened because when I woke the next day, I found the veil torn in half. And he's like, listen, Jane, I promise to tell you what that all meant and tell you about Grace Poole after we have been married for an entire year and a day. (laughs) Cool. Like, I'm just supposed to live in the dark for a whole year. Yeah, right. So, On 308, Jane says, satisfied I was not, but to please him, I endeavored to appear so. Relieved, I certainly did feel, so I answered him with a contented smile. So Jane goes to sleep in Adele's room that night. She doesn't sleep the whole night, and when she gets up in the morning, she is emotional as she leaves Adele because they're going to send her to school, and she's, like, sad she's going to be away from her. Chapter 26. So the morning of the wedding, Mr. Rochester anxiously awaits Jane, who takes a long time to get ready. They head off to the church, and Jane realizes that it's just them. There's no family. Adele's not there. Mrs. Fairfax isn't there. And Mr. Rochester is, like, rushing them. He's, like, pulling Jane's hand, rushing them to the church. And the ceremony begins, starts going smoothly until the priest says, you know, if anybody has any reason for these two to not be married, speak now or forever hold your peace. And of course, because it's a book, someone speaks up and says, I have a reason. It's a man. And he says that Mr. Rochester already has a wife. He reads off a document. It's a document from Mr. Mason, the man who was bit in the shoulder. And it says that Mr. Rochester married his sister, Bertha Antoinetta Mason, 15 years ago in Spanish Town, Jamaica. Mr. Mason comes into the room and 
supports what this man said. I think he's a lawyer, the man who first, you know, objected. And he's like, he married my sister 15 years ago. She's still alive. And Mr. Rochester (laughs) kind of loses it at this point. He's like trapped in this situation and he's like, I have been discovered. He's freaking out. So he admits, he's like, yes, I did marry Bertha Mason. She is alive, but she is batshit crazy. He's like hysterical. And he's like, come with me. Let's go meet my wife. And he like grabs Jane by the hand and pulls her. And she's freaking out, obviously. She does not understand what's happening. So they go to Thornfield. They enter a back room without a window. Grace Poole is like tending to something. And Jane is like, what is going on? But there is a person, a woman, running back and forth, unkempt, wild. And Jane realizes that this is the woman who was in her room who tore the veil. And it all kind of starts making sense to her. So this person, the woman runs back and forth. She runs to Mr. Rochester and grabs him. Mr. Rochester ties her to a chair. He compares Jane to Bertha Mason and explains how he just wanted a wife after the craziness of this woman. He dismisses them. He's like, this, he's like, here you go. Like, this is my wife. She's psychotic. I mean, she's like feral, you know, like an animal basically is how they describe her. And he's like, now you all see who I'm married to. I was just trying to be happy by marrying someone who's not, you know, crazy. And he dismisses them all. And he's like, Jane had no idea. There is no blame on her for this. Please leave her out of this. And the reader discovers that Mr. Mason had been visiting Jane's uncle, the one in Madeira. And while he was visiting Jane's uncle, Jane had sent that letter to her uncle. So he got the letter, heard the news that she was marrying Mr. Rochester and was like, what? He already has a wife. He's married to my sister. And Jane's uncle was sick. And so he sent Mr. Mason to stop the wedding. So basically, Jane stopped her own wedding, which she should have. I mean, he is married. So anyway, um, they all leave and Jane goes into her room, changes out of her wedding dress. And on 319, it says Jane Eyre, who had been an ardent, expectant woman, almost a bride, was a cold, solitary girl again. Her life was pale. Her prospects were desolate. So Jane sits there and reflects on how horrible everything turned out. Um, she's convinced that Mr. Rochester hates her because he, you know, had a freak out and just like left and didn't, you know, comfort her in any way or like apologize. And she decides she needs to leave. And she's like, I have to get out of here. On 320, she says, I lay faint, longing to be dead. One idea only still throbbed lifelike within me, a remembrance of God. So she plans to leave Thornfield for good. Okay, chapter 27. Jane is in her bedroom looking for an answer, and the answer comes to her that she needs to leave Thornfield as soon as possible. She leaves her room. She's feeling very dizzy and faint and finds Mr. Rochester sitting outside of her bedroom waiting for her. And he tells her that he's surprised she didn't rip him to shreds, she didn't cry, and that she's still there. And she doesn't speak. He asks for forgiveness and she tells the reader, you know, I'd already forgiven him. And he takes her into his room, gives her food, wine, trying to make her feel better. And he tries to embrace her, but she turns away from him and she tells him that she must go. And this is when he com- he's like come up with his own idea of what they should do, which is to go to one of his other homes in the south of France where they can be together and nobody needs to know that he's already married. Basically, like, let's leave. You can be my mistress. Um, And she's like, no, thank you. That's not what I'm about to do. And he says also that he will pay Grace to stay with his wife, Bertha. Jane says, absolutely not. I'm not going to stay with you anywhere. You're married. I can't do that. And he's like, please listen to reason. And then he gets really angry and violent. She calms him down. And then that's when she starts crying. And 
he, I mean, is desperate. So he starts being a jerk and he accuses her of only wanting to marry him for his station in life. And she's like, you know, that's not true. I love you. And because I love you, I have to leave. And then he starts to freak out. And Jane looks to God in this moment because she's like, I'm desperate. I don't know what to do. God, please help me. And at this point, Mr. Rochester calms down and he asks for permission to explain it all to Jane. So this is his story. He explains that his dad had arranged this marriage with Bertha Mason so that his son could inherit 30,000 pounds that were to go to Bertha Mason. So it was all for money, but he wanted to ensure that Edward Rochester got an inheritance because his older brother was being left the estate of his father. So he arranges this marriage. He goes over to the West Indies to marry her and he courts her. He says she was very beautiful. They were hardly ever alone, so he didn't really get to know her. And they got married. And when they finally moved in together, he started to notice how crazy she was. Then finds out that her mom was also crazy and was put in an insane asylum, as was one of her brothers. And I think it should be pointed out that Mr. Rochester described her as crazy by saying that she had things like violent outbursts, not doing what she was told, unhealthy indulgences, things like that. So she could very well be insane, um, but she also could have just been a woman who didn't want to be controlled. And he was like, no, no, honey, like (laughs) the attic for you, right? So Anyway, doctors did declare her mad at one point. Mr. Rochester becomes suicidal at this point, but he says that one night he heard a whisper telling him to go back to Europe and take his wife with him, and that the whisper voice, whatever, I don't know, I think he thinks it was God, also said that they were no longer husband and wife, but to keep her safe and comfortable and in secrecy and to just go on and live his life, which seems like the easiest thing for him to do, right? Anyway, Mr. Rochester finishes his story by telling Jane that he found Grace to take care of his wife, but his wife is very smart and cunning and obviously has found a way to escape because she has multiple times tried to kill Mr. Rochester and other people, including Jane. So Jane asks him how he spent his time after he locked Bertha up in the attic. He says he spent his time traveling and confesses that he had mistresses, but that was all. But he tells Jane about when he first met Jane and how she struck him and he had to get to know her. He talks about how he admired her, longed to hear her say his name, and he's just like saying all these sweet things. And she asks him, she's like, please don't talk about those days anymore. That's behind us. But he tells her, you know, why he wanted to marry her and she feels so much love for him. But she knows what she has to do, which is leave. So he asks then, like, are you really going to leave me like this? Are you really going to leave me to die in despair and sadness? So she thinks about how she cares for him and how much she loves him and wonders who in the world cares and loves about her in that same way. And on page 342, she says, I care for myself. The more solitary, the more friendless, the more unstained I am, the more I will respect myself. So she, I mean, her whole life, she's been searching for this love, this like unconditional love that she's never felt and even said to Helen Burns at school, you know, I would do anything to get that, including harm myself. But now she's gotten to the point where she's like, no, no, my self-respect is too much. I can't sacrifice that in order to be loved. So she's realizing this. Mr. Rochester goes to her, grabs her and shakes her and is like trying to convince her to stay and be his comforter. And she starts to back away to the door. He begins to cry. She goes back to him, comforts him, smooths his hair. He tries again to embrace her, but she escapes and wishes him a farewell forever. And leaves the room. And that night, Jane falls asleep. And in her dream, she sees her mom. 
And in her dreams, she sees her mom who tells her to avoid temptation. And in the middle of the night, she wakes up, grabs a few things and leaves her bedroom, whispers goodbye to every door as she passes it and grabs a little bit of food and leaves Thornfield, walks away. And when the sun rises, she feels tempted to turn back and be everything that Mr. Rochester wants her to be to sacrifice her self-respect, but she cannot, and she keeps going. She finally reaches a place where she gets a ride to this place that she had heard of, which she thought was a town, um, and uses the only money that she has left. Okay, chapter 28. She travels in this coach for two days before the coach is like, I can't take you any further because this is the last of your money. She gets out of the coach in this like fork in the road, and there's nothing around. And the coach drives away and she realizes that she left her bag of belongings in it. So she's really just destitute. She has nothing. And she ends up sleeping that night on the street in the dark outside. And she prays for Mr. Rochester. The next day she wakes up and she walks until she hears a church bell. She's finally getting close to a town. And when she gets there, she goes into a small shop to sit down and thinks about, you know, asking for a cake, some sort of sustenance because she's starving, but she has nothing to give in return. So she leaves the store and she goes to a house and asks if they need a servant, but they decline. And so she leaves the house, goes to the church to find a clergyman and ask for advice, but she can't find the clergyman. He's not there. His father died. An older woman is there and they talk for a little bit. And at this point, Jane is starving. She is thinking about giving her scarf and gloves in exchange for some bread. She walks around. She sees a farmer eating and she asks him for a slice of bread, which he gives her because she doesn't look like a beggar. He's just kind of like, okay, here's some bread to this like nice woman who's walking by. And she spends another day searching for work with no luck. So she approaches a different house. And there's an older woman in the window with a couple of young women, and they're looking at a book. The older woman, she realizes, is a servant. Her name is Hannah, and the two younger girls are named Diana and Mary. And Jane knocks on the door and asks for a place to stay and a piece of bread. And Hannah, the servant, gives her some bread, but she's like, you can't stay here. Jane is desperate at this point. She is, like, sick. She's cold. She's starving. And... She is, you know, praying to God. On page 363, Jane says, Oh, this last hour approaching in such a horror. She thinks she's dying. She says, Alas, this isolation, this banishment from my kind, not only the anchor of hope, but the footing of fortitude was gone. So she thinks she's going to die on this porch of this house. And just then, a man named Sinjin Rivers. Remember, his name is spelled St. John, but it's pronounced Sinjin. So he walks up right as Jane is like losing her mind and invites her in. And his sisters, Mary and Diana, get her some water and bread. They take her to a room and she they ask, you know, her name. She lies and says her name is Jane Elliott because she's worried that Mr. Rochester is going to be looking for her and she doesn't want to be found. And they take her to a room and allow her to spend the night. Chapter 29. So three days pass by and Jane spends them in bed with no strength. Hannah and Diana and Mary care for her at her bedside. And after three days, she finally gains the strength to eat. Hannah, the servant, doesn't seem to like Jane and, you know, accuses her of being a beggar, which Jane hates and Jane comes downstairs finally and she asks if she can help with the berries and Hannah starts asking her questions what her profession was before but Jane ignores the question and finds out that she is at a place called Moore House. She learns that Sinjin is the clergyman whose father died who she tried to find that day at the church and Hannah apologizes to her for almost turning her away. On page 370, Jane says, if you are a Christian, you ought not to consider poverty a crime. Hannah tells her more about Morehouse and Sinjin, and they go into the kitchen where Diana and Mary tell her that she's still too sickly to do anything. They, like, won't let her help around the house. They go into the parlor where 
Sinjin is. And Jane finds out that he is about 28 to 30. He has blue eyes and a Greek face. He is very handsome. He tells Jane to eat and again starts asking her questions about where she's from. And she tells them that it's a secret. And Diana supports her. She's like, let her keep her secret. We don't need to know. And Sinjin claims that he can't help her unless she tells him something. And she agrees to tell him everything that won't compromise where she last was because she doesn't want to be found. And she tells him about her childhood and Lowood school. She even admits to giving them a false name, that her name is Jane, but not Jane Elliot. And Diana and Mary are insistent that she stays with them until she finds work. Sinjin is more inclined to make her leave, but allows her to stay. Okay, chapter 30. So as time passes, Jane realizes that she likes Diana and Mary a lot. She considers Diana to be the natural leader of the trio of siblings, and she grows close to them, but not really close to Sinjin since he's rarely at home and they don't really get along. And she takes note that he's kind of gloomy. He's not, he doesn't have a great personality and he seems kind of sad. She does get a better idea of his character after hearing him preach as a clergyman. And she stays for a while and Diana and Mary are leaving soon to become governesses. So she finds out that their father died and didn't leave them any money. And they have a rich uncle, but he's not like leaving them any money either. And so they have to become governesses and get jobs. So Jane starts feeling more and more this like urgency to get a job because Diana and Mary are going to be leaving and she's not going to be able to stay there anymore. And so she visits with Sinjin and asks him, you know, have you heard of any prospects for work? And he goes on a long rant before he finally makes his proposal, which is he wants to open up a school for the poor girls in the area and asks Jane to be the teacher. And she accepts. She's excited about it. And he's like, you probably won't last long. He doesn't really think that she can do it. On page 385, Sinjin says to her, I mean that human affections and sympathies have a most powerful hold on you. I am sure you cannot long be content to pass your leisure in solitude and to devote your working hours to a monotonous labor wholly void of stimulus. So later on that day, the family receives a letter that their uncle John has died. And this is the uncle who has a lot of money, but he has left his fortune to a different family member and has given them just a very small amount. So the girls will still have to work as governesses, and they're upset that they didn't get more inheritance from him. Chapter 31. So Jane moves to Morton, where the school is going to be, and the school opens. She has 20 students, and she says on 389, much enjoyment I do not expect in the life opening before me, yet it will doubtless, if I regulate my mind and exert my powers as I ought, yield me enough to live on from day to day. So Jane reflects on the poverty around her and thinks that she can get used to it. She thinks about Mr. Rochester, and even though she's in this position she doesn't particularly like, she does feel glad that she declined his offer to stay with him and be his mistress. And as she's thinking, Sinjin comes, he brings her a package from his sisters with some art supplies. And he's like talking to Jane, advises her to not dwell on the past and tells her about how for a time he was miserable and unhappy with the cards dealt in his life, but he has now overcome it and plans to be a missionary in the East. While they're talking, a girl walks in. Her name is Miss Oliver, and she interrupts them. Jane finds out that she's the daughter of the man funding this school that Jane is now running. And she introduces herself to Jane. Her name is Rosamond Oliver. And after they leave, Jane observes about the two of them that she thinks that Rosamond and Sinjin are in love. Okay, chapter 32. So Jane begins to sort of like this job teaching these girls. It's not really super fulfilling or difficult for her, but she does have an affection towards the girls that she's teaching, and they really love Jane. But at night, she has nightmares about Rochester, and they, you know, make her feel upset, and she tries not to think about them. Going through the days, though, she sees Rosamond. She realizes that Rosamond comes to visit when she knows that Sinjin is going to be there, and this, you know, further 
proves her theory that the two have feelings for each other or that they're in love. And one day Rosamond sees Jane drawing a portrait and asks her to draw one of herself. Later, Sinjin sees this portrait and Jane kind of like offers, you know, do you want me to draw you one of her so that you can keep it? And asks Sinjin, you know, why don't you marry her? And he admits to her that he loves Rosamond, but he can't marry her. And Jane doesn't understand why. And he says, you know, Sinjin plans to be a missionary. And he doesn't think that a girl of Rosamond's beauty and personality are fit to be a missionary's wife. And he's like, this is my holy, this is my like duty. And I can't marry her because I need someone who's going to be a good missionary's wife. He is very much of the belief that like God is telling him what he needs to do and he can't, you know, indulge himself or that's like a sin. So marrying Rosamond would be indulgent. And as they're having this conversation, Sinjin is kind of like looking at her portraits and then he kind of gets weird. Jane doesn't really understand what's happening, but what is happening is that Sinjin sees her signature on one of her portraits, Jane Eyre. And remember, she lied about her name and they don't know her last name. And he kind of rips this corner of this portrait off and Jane notices but doesn't think too much of it. And he takes it and he leaves. Chapter 33. So one night after this weird encounter, Sinjin comes back to Jane's house and he starts to like tell her this story of Jane's life. He's discovered who she is and he's like, there's this girl named Jane and she was an orphan and she became a governess at Thornfield and almost married Edward Rochester, and then she fled, and her name is Jane Eyre. And he says that he received a letter from a man named Mr. Briggs. Mr. Briggs says that it's very important that Jane Eyre be found. Jane thinks that this is because of Mr. Rochester. She thinks that Mr. Briggs is trying to find her through Mr. Rochester, and so she asks, you know, how is Mr. Rochester? And Sinjin is like, this isn't about him. I don't know anything about him. Mr. Briggs is trying to find you because your uncle John died and he has left you an inheritance of 20,000 pounds. And 20,000 pounds then equates to like almost $2 million today. It might be like under $2 million, but it's around $2 million. So she's inherited this money from her uncle. And not only that, Sinjin reveals that his own name is Sinjin Air Rivers and that they are cousins, that her uncle John is also his uncle John. So this is the uncle that they wanted to inherit money from who only gave them a small amount because he gave the rest to their cousin Jane Eyre, who they didn't know. Jane is ecstatic. She's so excited to have found family and tells Sinjin that she wants to share the money between her and herself and her three cousins. And he's like, no, you're just excited right now. Don't promise that. And she's like, no, no, it's only fair that the four of us split this evenly. And so she decides that she's going to give each of them 5,000 pounds. Chapter 34. So Jane has, like I said, decided to distribute this inheritance between the four of them. She closes the school for Christmas and her cousins come back for Christmas and her two cousins, Diana and Mary, come back and they have a really fun Christmas at Moore House. And Jane spent like a lot of money redoing the house to make it better for their Christmas and Sinjin is upset because Rosamond is engaged to another man, a man who is wealthy. But they're all happy, at least the girls are happy, to be home together. The girls are happy that they no longer have to be governesses out in other places and that they can all be together. And they're all, you know, they spend their days together studying, doing all sorts of things. And Jane has been studying German. Sinjin asks her that, and he's like, don't study German anymore. Study this language with me, which is the language that he's learning to prepare to be a missionary in the East, in India. And so she does that. She learns this language for him. And he starts paying like special attention to Jane. 
his sisters notice that he's been like paying more attention to Jane and Jane kind of is uncomfortable about it, but she's just so happy to have this family. Anyway, one day Sinjin asks Jane to come to India with her to be a missionary. She is kind of like, okay, like I could do that. I could go with you and be a missionary. But then he reveals that he wants her to come as his wife. And she's like, absolutely not. I'm not about to marry my cousin. That's not what she says, but that's what I think. Anyway, she's like, I will go to India with you. I will be a missionary, but I can't be your wife. I don't love you. You don't love me. It would be a loveless, boring marriage. So no, but I will come and be a missionary with you if you'll accept that. So she denies his marriage proposal. And being the good Christian boy that he is, he tells her, Basically, God revealed to me that you are supposed to be my wife and be a missionary. And if you deny me this marriage, then you're denying God. And that's not being a good Christian. We love, we love when people use Christianity against you in a way like that. Like, I hate, I hate that I know what this experience feels like (laughs) for a guy to be like, hey, God revealed to me that we're supposed to be together. It's absurd. Anyway, so she's like, no, I'm sorry. I'm not marrying you. We don't love each other. And that's not any type of marriage that I want. And so he gets really mad and he leaves. Chapter 35. Sinjin does not stop trying to get Jane to marry him. He asks her over and over again, tries to convince her. And she's nice about it, as nice as she can be. But she's like, no, I'm literally not going to marry you. Stop asking me. (laughs) She confides in Diana and Mary what's going on. And Diana, like I said, Jane considers her to be sort of the leader of the pack. And Diana tells her not to marry Sinjin and also not to go to India. Sinjin, one last ditch effort to like get her to come. He prays that she'll come or like prays for her soul. And he's very good with words. He's like has an influence over her and she feels for like a second, oh, maybe I should go to India. Maybe I should marry him. Maybe that's what God wants. But she's like, no, I'm not doing it. And in this moment, I think they're like outside. If I remember right, they're outside. And she's like kind of feeling faint. And in this moment, she hears Mr. Rochester's voice calling to her saying her name and it's like he's far away but she can like hear his voice saying her name or calling to her this like breaks this spell like Sinjin was literally trying to convince her to marry him and this broke it for her and she's like no Mr. Rochester needs me she feels like something bad is happening to him and so she's like no I have to go find him and completely denies Sinjin for the last time okay chapter 36 okay so The next day, Jane wakes up and she's like, am I crazy? Did I really hear Mr. Rochester calling my name? Who knows? But I have to go to Thornfield. And so she gets a coach to go. She finds a note from Sinjin saying, like, don't be stupid. Don't do this. Marry me. And she anyway, she boards the coach and goes to Thornfield. She's super excited, kind of scared to see Mr. Rochester because she thinks something bad is happening. It's been a year since she left Thornfield, but she feels excited because one of the main reasons she didn't want to be with Mr. Rochester or she was afraid to be with him even before she knew that he was married was that she didn't have any money or family or anything to contribute to being his equal and she didn't feel comfortable being with him not as his equal and now she has fortune and she has family and she's figured out you know her freedom and herself and so she's excited going back because she's like maybe we can be together or maybe we can like make this work so she goes to thornfield and she is shocked to find thornfield has completely burned down it's like fully in ruins somebody burnt this house down, this mansion castle thing down. And so she goes into town near Thornfield and she asks what happened. And she finds out that Rochester's crazy wife in the attic, Bertha Mason, set the house on fire. 
a few months ago. And in the frantic fire, Rochester was able to save all of the servants. Nobody died. And he went up to the attic to find Bertha. But she was up on the roof. So he goes up to the roof. And she, before he can get to her, she jumps off the roof, commits suicide, and dies. Which is so sad. Anyway, Rochester, during the commotion, trying to save all of these people, he went blind and he lost a hand. And she learns that Mr. Rochester has been taken to another house that he owns. And it's like far away, secluded, away from everything. And the only people with him are two of his like servants, John and Mary. Chapter 37. So Jane immediately goes to find him in this house. She gets out of the coach, walks around, and finds Mr. Rochester sitting in his, like, garden. So she watches from afar, and she sees Mr. Rochester in his house and sees that he looks the same, but he looks sadder, and she can see from far away that he has lost his hand. He's obviously blind, and he, like, is standing in the doorway And then he goes inside. And so Jane goes and knocks on the door. And Mary, one of his servants, answers the door. And she is shocked to see Jane. But Jane kind of hushes her. She's like, I want to surprise Mr. Rochester. Please don't tell him that I am here. And so Mary was going to take a tray of tea to Mr. Rochester. So instead, she lets Jane take it. And Jane goes in. He obviously can't see her because he's blind. But she you know, gives him like some subtle hints and he finally realizes that it's Jane. And he's like, is this real? Are you a ghost? They embrace. And at this point, she promises, she's like, I'm, I'll never leave you. I love you. It's like me and you forever. And they go on a walk the next day. And Jane, you know, tells Mr. Rochester everything that happened in the last year, except she kind of leaves out the part where she slept on the ground for a few nights because she doesn't want him to feel bad about her situation. She tells him about Sinjin, about his proposal, and he is insecure about it. So she has to, like, reassure him, like, I don't love Sinjin. I've only ever loved you. After this reassurance, he asks Jane to marry him. She says yes. And... Obviously, they're now, he's no longer married because Bertha is dead, and so they can get married. So, you know, (laughs) all the perfect puzzle pieces have fallen together. Jane now has a fortune and a family. His wife is dead, and it's perfect. She's, like, sitting on his lap. They're so excited to be getting married. And Mr. Rochester tells her that a few nights ago, he was, like, desperate and sad and called out her name. He heard her answer. Because in that desperate moment when she heard, she says, she's, you know, she said, Mr. Rochester. So she realizes in that moment that she really did hear Mr. Rochester's voice and he heard hers. But she doesn't tell him this. She's a little concerned about his health because of what happened to him. And, you know, he's like blind and doesn't have a hand. And she just like showed up out of nowhere after a year. Um, And so she's trying to like be delicate with his emotions. Anyway, they're in love. They're going to get married. Great. Okay, chapter 38. Jane and Mr. Rochester get married. They don't have a big wedding. It's just the two of them and the preacher, and that's it. And Jane writes to her cousins to tell them that she's married. Sinjin has gone to be a missionary as he planned. So she hears from him again, but never about her being married to Mr. Rochester. He just kind of like ignores that. But Mary and Diana are very excited for her. After they're married, Jane, you know, inquires about Adele, goes to visit her, and Adele is like not happy at the school that she's in. And so she takes Adele out of the school and moves her to a better school. And Jane tells us that Adele grows up to be a very good woman. And Jane now is addressing us as reader, telling us, you know, what has happened in the last 10 years since she married Mr. Rochester. So she says they're very happy. She is very happy to be married to him and feel as though they are equals and not that he is superior to her. She tells us that Mr. Rochester is no longer blind, that two years after they got married, he started regaining vision and 
now he is like fully able to see. They had a child together, a boy. So Sinjin, like I said, went on to be a missionary in India. They write letters to each other pretty regularly. And she tells us that Sinjin thinks that he's going to die soon. Diana and Mary were both married to nice, wealthy men. And they're both happy. And we find out in the end that it seems as though Sinjin has died because she no longer receives letters from him anymore. But she feels happy that he, like, fulfilled his promise or whatever, that he was going to be a missionary and, you know, bring all these people to God and do God's work. And the last thing she says in the book is, like, a quote from a letter she received from Sinjin about doing the Lord's work and about how he was feeling like he was going to die and he was excited to go to heaven, essentially. Okay, that's the end of the book. I don't mean to sound like I'm not happy for Jane Eyre and Mr. Rochester. I just, I don't know, guys. It's not, it's not my favorite love story, I'm not going to lie. I do think that the writing is very beautiful, but I'm not super into it. Okay, so now I'm going to go over themes in depth. So the first theme is gender roles and feminism. So like I said in the beginning, this novel was revolutionary for the time, for Bronte's ideas of gender roles and feminism. So Jane is oppressed as a person of low social status, but more importantly, as a woman. And this was very much a time when it was outwardly believed that men were superior to women, unlike now where it's just like kind of inwardly quietly believed that men are better than women. Um, But she lived in a time where men were superior to women, and that's just how it was. And women couldn't really work for themselves. If they did, it was low society. Like her choices were to work for the rest of her life as a servant or get married to someone rich, which she couldn't do if she was not in the right social class. We see throughout the novel in different characters like Mr. Brocklehurst and Sinjin and even Mr. Rochester, they're like misogyny. And my favorite is Sinjin, who his misogyny is just like epic. And it's, you know, it's like, submit to me and marry me because I'm a man and God has told me that you belong to me and you'll only gain salvation if you marry me and become a missionary's wife, which is, you know, the pinnacle of Christian misogyny. We even see misogyny in Mr. Rochester. When he meets Jane Eyre, he assumes that she's dumb and he's continually shocked to find her to be his equal intellectually. Honestly, she's smarter than him, but he's so shocked that she could be intellectually his equal because she is a woman. And this is one of the main reasons Jane won't marry Mr. Rochester until she is his social equal with money because she doesn't want to feel like he's superior, like she's indebted to him. That is one of the main reasons that she doesn't want to marry him until she is secure in her own life. Also, do we actually believe that Bertha Mason is insane? Or is this just another instance of men trying to control women and when they fail to do so, they call her crazy? I don't know. I mean, the doctor did declare her mad. That doctor was probably male. And we don't really know. I am super interested because we don't really know. So like Mr. Rochester wanted Bertha to do and act how he wanted. And when she didn't and wouldn't obey him, he was like, to the attic. Anyway, I don't know if she was actually crazy or not. It's a fictional story, but it is interesting. And there is a book called Wide Sargasso Sea. And it's Bertha Mason's perspective. And I'm, I haven't read it yet, but I'm super excited to read it. Anyway, the women in the novel are constantly being rep- repressed and controlled. And this is what Jane Eyre is trying to overcome her entire life. Okay, the next theme is social class. So this is a very pride and prejudice world where societal class matters when it comes to who you're going to marry. I mean, it matters in all senses, but especially when you're going to marry someone. So Blanche Ingram was a much better suited match for Mr. Rochester in terms of social class. And this is why Jane feels so sad and inferior in that moment, because she loves Mr. Rochester, but she knows that he should be with someone like Blanche Ingram. Jane has no money. (laughs) And no prospects, 
already a burden to my parents. Um, And that's why she contacted her uncle about the inheritance. She didn't want to be inferior to her husband in the eyes of the world. She already felt inferior as a woman. And then to add to that, a woman with no money and no like social standing in the world. And so when she gets proposed to, she's like, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to write to my uncle who wanted to give me his inheritance and see what I can do about being an equal to Mr. Rochester. She's seen and experienced what it feels like to be the lowest social person in that room. And she doesn't want that feeling forever. She doesn't want to feel powerless, especially when it comes to the person that she's going to marry. Okay, the next theme is religion or belief. So obviously religion is a big theme throughout this book. It starts especially when Jane goes to Lowood School. At Lowood, she is taught to follow Christian rules and morals. Mr. Brocklehurst preaches this sort of Christianity that is intolerant and dogmatic where he attempts to strip his students of their pride through things like starvation, living like a meager lifestyle, and even humiliation, like when he makes Jane stand on the chair in front of everyone. And he does all of this, by the way, while he lives in very lavish conditions. Another person sort of like pinnacle of Christianity in this book is Helen Burns, the girl at school who dies of consumption. And she lives a kind of sadder type of Christianity, in my opinion, one where she is the person that is willing to be starved and humiliated and tortured because she feels like she deserves that and that God will reward her in heaven. She's like, well, I did leave my bed unmade, and so I do deserve not to eat dinner. That's like this really sad, sacrificial type of Christianity that Jane also doesn't believe in. And lastly, there's Sinjin Rivers, who preaches somewhere in the middle of these two people, kind of sacrifice your life to do missionary work for God, but he won't marry the woman he loves because he doesn't believe that she'll be a good missionary wife. And also it's like, feels like an indulgence to him to marry this beautiful woman that he loves. He's like, I can't be happy because I have to sacrifice everything in order to gain salvation. And he also does that thing where we talked about this a second ago, where guys tell you that they had a revelation or that God spoke to him and told him that he and Jane were meant to be together. And I hate that I literally have had this experience. (laughs) This is what happens when you grow up in a Christian society. Like guys say stuff like this. Like I had a revelation. I just have this feeling Like, we're supposed to be together. And it's like, no, no, (laughs) no. He's very much of the belief that you must sacrifice your freedom and your autonomy as a moral duty to God in order to be saved in heaven. So Jane experiences all these sides of religion and comes out in the end with her own sort of idea. She doesn't totally abandon religion, but she does not believe in the harsh God like Mr. Brocklehurst does, or a God that requires you to sacrifice your happiness and your freedom in order to be saved. And we love her for that. Okay, now the last theme is love and belonging. So Jane craves love and belonging her whole life. She's never belonged to any place or any person, and she's been searching for it her entire life. And in the first days at Lowood School, she tells her friend Helen that she says, to gain some real affection, from you or Miss Temple or any other whom I truly love, I would willingly submit to have the bone of my arm broken or to let a bull toss me or stand behind a kicking horse and let it dash its hoof at my chest. She is so desperate to feel that unconditional love from another person that she would do anything to get it. And this is obviously dangerous because it sets her on the course of sacrificing anything and everything to feel love or give love in her life, including harming herself. And We see her grow from this idea throughout the novel to one where she finally chooses herself and her own happiness when she refuses to marry and be with Mr. Rochester after finding out he already has a wife. She even kind of refuses when she knows that she won't be his equal and she refuses Sinjin. And she loves Mr. Rochester, but she decides she cannot be in a relationship where she feels inferior or, you know, they're illegal because she's a mistress no matter how much Rochester begs no matter how much she loves him and when she accepts his proposal in the first place 
the first thing she does, like I said, is send a letter to her uncle because she wants to be equal to Mr. Rochester or self-sufficient in some way because she doesn't want to rely on him and his money and feel indebted to him because she has nothing. So by the end of the novel, we see that Jane understands the necessity of self-love and self-respect because she realizes she's not willing to lose herself and her autonomy to another person, no matter how much she loves them. And that is growth. Okay, guys, that is the end of Jane Eyre. I would love to know how you feel about it. I would love to have like an open discussion about Jane Eyre and Mr. Rochester's relationship. I just want to know. I know there's people out there who just think it's like, the most beautiful relationship ever. And I don't totally disagree. I do think it's beautifully written. I'm just not totally on board. And maybe someday I will be. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope this helped you pass a test or write a paper or something. I don't know. Make sure you follow Brief Podcast on Instagram and TikTok so that you know when new books are released. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please review for me. It really helps me out. 